Today, church, um, I have two passages as we, as we normally do, and I'm going to start off by, by reading both of those, and so I'm going to jump straight into it in reading from the Old Testament and then again from the New Testament passage. I'm going to be going to lots of places in Scripture today. I'll, I'll let you know as much as I can ahead of time where I'm going to be, um, but uh, my notes will also be available, so uh, just a, a forewarning. But the Old Testament text today comes from Joshua 24. Verses 14 through 15, followed up by the New Testament passage, which I'll be preaching from today, which is Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. The Old Testament text, Joshua 24, 14 through 15, says this. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Turn now to the New Testament text, which is Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. The Lord's word says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy... Your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Let's pray, church. Father God, as we look at your word, we are always humbled by the truth that is contained within. I pray, Lord, that you would just bless this preaching now, Lord, as it goes out, that you would use it, Lord, to transform the minds and the hearts of all those who hear. May you be honored, Father, by the preaching of your word. May you be honored by our receiving of that word, Father. May you be honored in just all the worship that we give you in this time. We thank you for your son, Father. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence with us. May you be with us now on this Lord's Day. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning to you, church. It is a blessing to be able to share God's word with you uh, on this Lord's Day as usual. And I do hope that everyone had a good Resurrection Sunday last week with uh, family and friends. And I especially hope uh, that everyone here had a uh, time of thoughtful reflection upon just exactly what it was that our Savior did for his church by dying upon the cross and raising uh, three days later, as that is um, the time of year that we come to celebrate and reflect upon that which Christ accomplished. It's been a few months since I've last had the opportunity to preach, and the benefit that I have in periodically preaching is that I have the ability to choose my text far in advance, and I have uh, several months to think upon, reflect upon, to study, to meditate, Uh, and to apply the text to to my own life. 
And one of the things that I try and do in preparing a sermon is uh, to both deeply study, uh, but also, and just as importantly, is to personally apply the truths of God's Word that I will be preaching on uh, in the future. And in preparing this particular sermon, I found myself continuously dwelling, thinking, and meditating upon the presence of the Lord in any and all areas of my own daily life. And not that this was a new concept for me, but I found myself deeply contemplating the presence of the Lord in all aspects of everyday life. When I wake up, when I go to work, when I'm at home, when I'm alone, when I'm with my family, when I go to sleep, I I found myself reflecting on the fact that there is not a moment at any time of the day that God is not right by our side walking with his children through every moment of what this life may bring our way. For no part of life is separate from our walk with God. In fact, this theme of God's continual presence is one that is extremely prominent throughout all of the pages of Scripture. There are some verses I'd like you to consider. I will name them briefly, but then I'm going to read through them, and you would have to be a master Bible turner to make it through all these at the pace I'm going to read them, so it probably would just be best to listen. But again, I will state them and then read the the Scripture. Um, But church, would you give your attention to hearing these uh, verses? There is a theme that goes through them, and I want you to hear the words of our Lord. First one from Joshua 1.9 says this, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you, be not dismayed, for I am your God, I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you, says the Lord with my righteous right hand. Deuteronomy 31.6, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Matthew 28, 20. Teaching, and this is referring to Christ, them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, says Christ, I am with you always to the end of the age. Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Lastly, Romans 8, 38 through 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, this list could go on with many more passages, um, many more scriptures from many other books throughout uh, God's holy word. But the point is that God's direct presence and prominence in our life is something continually seen and taught throughout all the pages of scripture. It's there in almost every book of of scripture that we go through that God's presence is specifically taught and and shown to be with his people at all times. It is uh, undisputable. For our walk with Christ is not one of a casual friendship in which we need to schedule out certain times in our week to visit with Him. No, it is a relationship that requires complete devotion in every aspect and in every minute of our life. For though Christ has promised His presence in every minute of our life, He in return requires complete devotion in every area of our life. 
Consider again one more scripture in reference to this specific point. This one specifically comes from Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. Again, Lord's word says this. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, referring to Christ, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Church, our calling to Christ is a clear one. Especially in in light of passages like this, it becomes even more clear of exactly what Christ has called us to. But it is not an easy one. For our calling in Christ is one that requires complete and utter devotion in all areas of our life. Not just some. Not just one day. Not just one thing. All of our lives are to be fully and completely devoted to the calling which Christ has called us to. And though once Christ does call us into his kingdom, through his power and through his grace alone, our election and entrance into it are permanent. That is for sure. But this does not mean that our hearts do not wander to serve other masters. For in our walk with Christ, we can all grow weary and we can all forget that which Christ has called us to. Our hearts can continually wander to worshiping other gods, as we all know, to worshiping other idols. And this happens quite regularly, even on a daily basis, sometimes hour by hour. For just as the hymn that we previously sang states, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. This is why Christ was so paradoxical in his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which the scripture text for today comes from, because the heart of Israel had turned so idolatrous that Christ needed to clarify exactly what the true priorities of his kingdom were in light of eternity. Therefore, a complete devotion to Christ is central, is absolutely central in understanding and properly applying the specific scripture text from today. And before we merge into looking more closely at the particular text, Matthew 6, 19 through 24, let me first help in setting the text in its proper place and context and giving a little bit of background understanding. Uh, Matthew chapter 6 is right in the middle of Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount, uh, according to Matthew, is covered in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And starting in Matthew 6, there's some debate among scholars about exactly how uh, the Beatitudes, which started back in Matthew 5, um, or also the beginning verses of the Sermon on the Mount, should be interpreted. But a majority of scholars seem to suggest that a large focus of the Beatitudes is primarily a focus on the rewards that come for virtuous and godly behavior when, and specifically only when, one uh, seeks first the kingdom of God. Such understanding would fit uh, very nicely in the root of Judaism, as most Jewish, uh, Jewish teachers stress rewards for righteousness. Likewise, Jesus also emphasizes rewards for righteousness uh, reserved in heaven when properly sought after in placing the kingdom of God first. 
The difference was that a portion of Judaism at that time had distorted righteousness to a point of being in conflict with the righteousness of God. Thus, many scholars agree, as do I, that the Beatitudes provide an example of a new kingdom that was being instituted when Christ came at his first coming. And this new kingdom is one that God himself would institute through the power of Christ. Thus, the Beatitudes begin the Sermon on the Mount with a specific focus on God's contrasting kingdom, which is found through his grace alone, not through man's. Therefore, the Beatitudes are primarily the eschatological blessings of the kingdom when one seeks first, and again, the emphasis on seeks first, the kingdom of God. And they also provide a framework for the church to understand what it means to be part of this kingdom. Therefore, the theological purpose of the entire Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew's account, chapters 5 through 7, centers ultimately on the kingdom of heaven, as members of this kingdom are to be salt and light to the world. As members are to be salt and light to the world. This provides an example um, as a contrast community that God would place in a contrasted world. So understanding the introduction and context of the Sermon on the Mount is central to fully understanding Christ's words in Matthew 6, 19-24. Let me take just a, another moment again, church, and I think it's uh, important to help understand the context of exactly what's being talked about uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. So what I want to do is to quickly give a snapshot of the titles, and I'm going to be going off of the way the ESV would be set up, the titles of each of the portions on the Sermon of the, of the Mount. I'm going to go through it briefly. I'm going to be covering over Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And again, I'm just looking at the titles to give you an understanding of the flow of the things that Christ is addressing as we come to look more closely in uh, chapter 6. But starting in Matthew chapter 5, the introduction is given. And this is where the Beatitudes would be contained. Next, Christ discusses salt and light, talking about what his kingdom, his followers are to be. Next, in verses five, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, it discusses that Christ came to fulfill the law, talking about the contrast. I have not come to abolish it, rather to fulfill it. Next, Christ discuss, uh, discusses anger and lust in chapter 5, 21 through 30, where he uh, says multiple times from here on out, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Again, showing the contrast. This is what you are hearing. This is what you are taught. But let me tell you the proper and correct understanding of it. Uh, he talks about the uh, similar issues of divorce in 5.31-32, oaths in 5.33-37, through 37, retaliation and love for enemies, 5.38-48, giving to the needy, 6.1-4. He then gives the Lord's Prayer in chapter 6, 5-14, and talks about fasting, 6.15-18. Each of these showing a contrast about what people had heard, what they believed, yet what Christ and his kingdom call them to. Chapter 6, 19 through 24, which is our text for today, is where Christ talks about treasures in heaven, again showing contrast. Next, in 6, 25 through 34, he says to not be anxious, saying that many around you will be, but I tell you, do not be, and he gives reason for that. Judging others, in 7, 1 through 6, asking and it will be given to you, in 7, verses 7 through 11, a tree and its fruit in chapter 7, 15 through 20, and then the departing, for I never knew you, 
He has a stern warning near the end of his sermon for those who claim to know him, who claim to know his kingdom, but clearly are not of his kingdom, where Christ, again, will conclude with, depart from me, for I never knew you, in chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, finally concluding on, uh, on giving advice on one building uh, their house on the rock in 7, verses 24 through 27. It is about as brief as I can make it with having some clarity to it. But as you can see through most of the titles, what Christ did in his teaching on the Mount was to take many of the popular and traditional teachings of that day, hence you have heard it said, and to clarify the proper and correct teaching of his kingdom, where he replies, but I say to you, being the Christ, being our Savior, being the Messiah. For left to ourselves, we distort and turn from the true ways of God, hence the importance of Christ's sermon in redirecting and correcting many of the contemporary issues of their time and also of our time today. So let's now give our attention specifically to understanding, knowing this context, to, uh, again, gaining greater insight and applying um, uh, the message that Christ has for us in 619 through 24. So as we look specifically at these verses, in in chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, we learn that the Pharisees were overly concerned about acquiring material things. And while Jesus taught that there were benefits of a proper attitude toward wealth, Christ saw that the issue with man is always, always an idolatrous one. And so as he addressed in each of his previous sections in his sermon, he again shows what has the potential of taking the place of God in the heart of man, the contrast. And here he pulls out that what has the potential of being the idol for man naturally on their uh, own will seek out worldly wealth, worldly things. But he contrasts that with his spiritual kingdom. The word treasure that's used here in uh, this verse literally means what one saves, stores, or invests in. So its meaning is quite broad, which we'll come to look at in a little bit more detail. And though though it's clear that this word is not confined to just gold or silver, it extends to cover any and all material reserves that one would find here on earth. For Christ knew the temptation, even then, that his people faced and where they put their trust and what they invested in. He knew the ease of one storing up the things of this world specifically as a means of gaining security. But Christ tells his listeners that instead, instead, They are to store up treasures in heaven, for they are far more secure than treasures on earth, where moth, rust, and thieves do not destroy them. Therefore, we believers are to lay up or invest in or store up spiritual assets, which should have complete priority over any earthly treasures. No believer can take something with them to heaven, He can only send it ahead in the form of a spiritual investment. And this will return to the believer in the form of rewards. How believers use their time and direct their efforts in this life reveal where their heart is as well as their treasure. Now notice here, church, that this was a command directly from Christ. This was not a suggestion. This is not just mere teaching. This is not insight that Christ has given. This was a command given to those who follow after him. Christ clearly tells his followers, do not lay up. He uses the command um, that we are not to lay up treasures in earth, but instead we are to, again in verse 20, lay up 
treasures in heaven, referring to the heavenly, spiritual, eternal treasures that await us in Christ. Christ commands the correct priorities of his people that we are to have while on our time here on earth. I would like to clarify uh, on this point, too, that Christ is not scolding or condemning wealth. That needs to be made clear. He is merely showing the dangers therein and commanding proper priorities in the lives of his followers. It is not a condemnation of riches, but rather a warning of a danger inherent in riches, a danger which lies in the way material things demand one's time, one's energy, one's resources, and thereby have the ability to undermine and detract from the quality of one's spiritual life and condition. Moving on in Matthew 6, 20 through 22 through 24, Christ goes on to connect the proper priorities or our heavenly treasures with the proper spiritual condition that follows. Jesus explains that a good eye promotes a spiritual understanding throughout the total person. The good eye promotes a spiritual understanding throughout the total person. He states that the person with the quote-unquote healthy eye knows the true value of things and lives accordingly. In contrast, a bad or evil eye is envious, covetous, or grudging. Such an evil eye leads to a distortion or even worse, a loss of spiritual vision so that the person is enveloped in spiritual darkness. This conflict between light and darkness manifests itself in the conflicts of our interests and priorities that exist in the depths of our hearts. In verse 22, Christ contextually uses the word I, specifically the word I, as the entrance into man's spiritual condition. And how do we know this? Because this term I metaphorically represents that of spiritual understanding and enlightenment, as we see way back in Genesis 3, 5 and 3, 7. There are many other scripture verses, but um, I can only add so many into a sermon. But these two will give a very good understanding of what scripture teaches about the I and how important it is from the Old Testament all the way through the New So note in these verses the importance of such a quote-unquote spiritual eye as we see with Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3, verse 5 says this, For God knows that when you eat from it, referring to the tree, referring to the fruit, that your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Shortly after, two verses after, in Genesis 3, 7 It says, then, referring to after the eating of the fruit took place, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. In light of Genesis 3, and also many other passages in Scripture, we see a very important connection between Christ's spiritual teaching of the eye and man's spiritual condition. For the eye is the entrance to our spiritual condition, and more specifically, the entrance into man's heart. As Matthew 6, 22 through 23 teaches, when the eye is good, when it is single, single single-minded, when it is sound, when it is healthy, the whole body, the whole spiritual self is healthy and full of light. For the eye is the lamp, the eye is the lamp to the entire body. Follow with this analogy, church, because this is very enlightening. Um, as you understand exactly how these are connected. 
This most certainly refers to our spiritual hearts. The eye being the lamp to the body refers to the entrance into our spiritual hearts because this is where our treasure is ultimately stored according to verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. The Greek word used for lamp in verse 22 refers to a small clay lamp that would have had a wick fed with olive oil. And this would have illuminated the surrounding area and used for light in dark rooms. This very small lamp would have been bright enough to illuminate an entire room, if not several of them, with just one small flame. The idea that's presented is actually quite clear, because the lamp and the flame are seen as being very small, but the effects of that small flame are far-reaching, being able to illuminate an entire room. Just as that small flame can illuminate the entire room, the eye is the lamp unto the body. And what is put in through that eye will fill that room quickly with whatever it is is allowed entrance through the eye. When our eyes are opened, when our eyes were first opened by the power of the Holy Spirit, we received spiritual illumination. And this was a task done by God alone. But what we fill our eyes with becomes an eminent and pertinent choice that all believers must make in their walk with Christ. For what we fill our hearts with through the focus of our eyes quickly become our treasure. And according to verse 24, there is only enough room on the throne of our hearts for one master to occupy that place. And so the question, church, must be asked by the reader, which master shall reign? God, heavenly concerns, or money, riches, and earthly concerns? For a person cannot serve both masters. One will eventually win out and exercise control over the other. It is important to note here again, church, that the meaning of this word money, as translated in the ESV, is better translated as mammon, which is what the uh, King James Version would translate it as. And this Greek term would have referred specifically uh, to a broader sense than just money. It would have included money, of course, but also wealth and or property uh, that would have existed. One of the best translations, I think, in my opinion, is in Luke 16.9 when the NIV translates the word simply as worldly wealth, just all inclusive of anything that we rely on for sustenance or security uh, on this earth. With this translation, uh, the word becomes much more personalized to mean one's individual material goods, including all money, all things, and all material possessions. The understanding of it becomes then much more broad. So Jesus, in using the term treasure, includes in his prohibition not only just wealth, not only just wealth, but also those things which we human beings regard as our reserves for security. That is the true um, uh, teaching here. That is the true heart of the matter, no pun intended, uh, that we need to understand. That which we require and rely on for security outside of God alone. So the logic is simple. Which is our greatest, greatest treasure? The question is simple. Which is our greatest treasure? Worldly possessions, worldly security, or spiritual possessions? and spiritual security. Christ asks this question rather simply in the text, which do you have more faith in, God's word or earthly treasures? Though this is a choice for the people of God, it is not a question for the people of God. Let me say that again. Though this is a choice for the people of God, it is not a question for the people of God. No, it again is a command from Christ himself. 
That command is quite simple. We either obey it or we disobey it. As followers of Christ, we must ensure that our priorities are proper when it comes to the things of this world. For according to Matthew 6, the throne of our hearts has two non-negotiable conditions. There are two conditions that are clearly seen in uh, this text. One, that there is only enough room for one master. That's the first thing. There's only enough room for one master in our hearts. The second condition is that it must always be occupied by a master. It's never neutral. It is never left open. It is always occupied by one or the other. There is only enough room for one, and it must always be occupied. It is always occupied by one. I recognize, church, that these are rather heavy words. They were hard for me to study as I looked at the, uh, the details. They were even more difficult for me to apply. You start realizing when you really think about, uh, about these things, and I'm going to go slightly off script here, you, you really start to recognize and to think about how prone your heart is to wandering. Um, just a little bit of a distraction, just a little bit of thinking in the other direction, and your heart is quickly occupied by the other. It is, uh, takes much effort, much diligence and discipline to keep our hearts um, in the place they need to be and to keep Christ on his throne. Christ's teaching is clear, as we see. We must have God alone as the master of our heart. There is no in-between. There is no partiality. We must choose with conviction which God we will serve. As Joshua stated in today's Old Testament text, quote, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But, uh, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And by God's grace, may we all say amen to that. So church, we learn much from Christ's teaching in Matthew six nineteen through 24. But how can we apply this truth to our daily walk with Christ? What are the applications that we see here? I would like to leave you uh, with three applications from this text. I'll read them slowly, and I'll repeat them since they won't be um, up on, on the screen. Number one, our daily focus, our daily focus must first and foremost be heavenly and on eternity. Our daily focus must first and foremost be heavenly and on eternity, verses 19 through 21. Brother or sister, where is your daily focus? There's a question would serve you well to ask yourself right now. Is it first and foremost on the things of this world? If so, you must repent to follow after your master, follow after our master, our Lord and Savior. For he has commanded us to place our hope ultimately and completely in him and in his kingdom. Our hope, our focus, our everything must be in him. He is not neutral. He doesn't require some. He requires everything. If someone is here today, and you're hearing this, that Christ is requiring everything, and maybe you are not a follower of Christ, my question to you would be this. What do you place your hope in on this earth? For the follower of Christ, their hope is completely, as it, at least it should be, completely, undeniably, upon Christ and Christ alone. For all that we see with our eyes 
in this physical world will one day fail us. And though there's a beauty, an undeniable beauty that exists in this world as we look around and everything that we see, our hearts know, even in all that beauty, that there is still something missing. It is never quite complete. And it is this incompleteness that you are left with, even when it seems like everything around you should, in fact, be complete. What is it that might be missing, you ask? It is your redemption through Christ and your reconnection with the God that created your very life. So I would say to you, turn to him, for he is gentle and humble, and he will bring completeness to your empty soul. Application number two. What we put in through our spiritual eye is what we will get out of our spiritual hearts. What we put in through our spiritual eye is what we will get out of our spiritual hearts. Verses 22 through 23. Church, are you content with your walk with Christ? If so, is it not because of how you have purposely and intentionally guarded the treasures of your heart by only allowing the things of eternity to enter through it? Or church, are you discontent with your walk with Christ and frustrated with your daily fellowship with him? Is it not because you have only allowed darkness to enter through your eyes, darkening the room of your very heart? Have you placed too much of your hope on the mammon of this world only to neglect the heavenly treasures that Christ calls us to? Repent, brother or sister, that your Savior may again re-enter into the room of your heart so that he may bring his light and regain his seat on your heartly throne. For God is gracious. God is most certainly gracious, ever patiently awaiting for his children to acknowledge their sin and confess it to him and to return to him. As Proverbs 24, 16 states, for the righteous may fall seven times, yet they will always rise again. And through Christ's grace, this is so. Therefore, may, may we guard our, our, our heart, but more specifically, our spiritual eyes, for our spiritual condition and eternal matters are at stake in our doing so. Again, to the one who may not know Christ, I say to you on this point that there is much more to reality than just the physical. For our Savior came in the flesh and lived a perfect life as a sinless man, but has since conquered death and now sits at the right hand of God in the spiritual realm. He will one day return to this physical world, to reclaim his people, and to make all things new. For the spiritual realm exists just as certain as we do, right in this very moment. And the only one with the keys to the everlasting kingdom, both spiritual and physical, when those two will become one, is Christ alone. Third point, church, and final point. We are always serving a master, but we can only serve one master. We are always serving a master, but we can only serve one master. Verse 24. Church, the heart is a voracious treasure hunter. Never is it neutral. It is also highly partisan, having only room for one king or one master. If you've ever felt the tumultuous pull between the two opposing sides as your heart enters into a battle for lordship, you'll immediately be able to relate to the experience that exists when our hearts enter into this battle for the throne. And yet as this battle wages within, it is not a battle for which side will gain access. It's not a battle for which one will take that seat. No, that seat is always occupied. 
If there is a battle, it's not because you're waiting to see which one will win. It's because one has already won. It's never empty. It's never left alone. The question then is by whom, church, is that seat occupied by in your heart at that very moment? Who, church, is that seat occupied by at this very moment? Brothers and sisters, who is it that sits at that throne of your heart? For it must be Christ, and it must be Christ alone. We must fight daily to keep our master in the proper place of our hearts. For if we do not, idols of all types lurk closely by, waiting for any opportunity to occupy the coveted heart throne. But you may ask, what if? And I say this to my brothers and sisters in Christ. What if it is not Christ who is currently occupying that seat in your heart? What if you hear this? And you clearly know that Christ has strayed from that seat. I say to you, fret not, for your Savior is always close at hand, waiting patiently for his children to give him access to that central seat. For one is but a moment away from turning from their sins to follow wholeheartedly after their Savior. And lastly, again, I say to any non-Christian who might be here today, Christian or not, We are all ruled by something. It doesn't matter if a person has a faith in Christ or not. We are all ruled by something. My prayer for you is that you would come to know Christ as your master. That you would come to learn from him, to follow after him. That he may come to be the master of your heart. For though his calling may be difficult, our heavenly prize is more than worth the cost. In recap, church, Just a couple of points. First, our master demands complete obedience. God requires us complete and total devotion to him. There is no in-between. There is no neutral. We are either serving him or we are not. Christ draws a contrast between earthly possessions and heavenly ones, the second point. He draws a contrast. He reveals that all that we have in this life is liable to decay and theft. Puts in its proper, uh, proper perspective. And if our hearts and our treasures are in heaven, we will have something solid and lasting that can never be removed. But the contrast is, if they are not, all that we have stored up will one day be lost, plundered to another, ready to be destroyed, ready to be stolen, ready to fall into the wrong hands. Jesus warns, and the third point, Jesus warns against a divided heart. It's impossible for both God and possessions to be our our master. It's impossible for God in this world to be our master. The heart can be only devoted to one, Christ or the world. But in this, again, church, I say that God is gracious, and he only wants his children to repent and return to him when we forget and slip from the ways of our Savior. If you have felt conviction in this preaching, my prayer for you again is that you do not sit in your conviction, but it is merely a motivation to return to your master, the only one who rightly should take the place in the heart of a believer. So in closing, church, I again ask that redundant question, where is your treasure? Where is your treasure? This is actually a difficult question, even though it's been asked multiple times, but it is a necessary question, one that needs to be asked by 
your pastors, one that needs to be asked by yourself, one that needs to be asked by your brothers and sisters in Christ as you fellowship with them. Where is your treasure? For it is always wandering to looking for other masters, but it must stay focused on Christ alone. And if we cannot say with conviction that our treasure is God alone, if you cannot say that, then we have begun to identify our personal idols and we must waste no time in running back into the loving arms of our Father, our Savior, and our Master. Let me end with an excerpt from Charles Spurgeon's Morning and Evening evening devotional, one that I, I personally enjoy. But in it, Spurgeon states this. And listen carefully to Spurgeon's words. The disciple must follow his master. Christ was not of this world. His life and his testimony were a constant protest against conformity with the world. Never was such overflowing affection for men as you find in him. But still he was separate from sinners. In like manner, Christ's people must go forth, as did Christ. They must take their position as witness bearers for the truth. They must be prepared to tread the straight and the narrow path. They must have bold, unflinching, lion-like hearts, loving Christ first, loving Christ first, and his truth next, and Christ and his truth beyond all of this world. You cannot grow in grace to any high degree while you are conformed to the world. The life of separation may be a path of sorrow, but it is the highway of safety. And though the separated life may cost you many pangs, it makes every day battle, yet it is a happy life after all. No joy can excel that of the soldier of Christ. Jesus reveals himself so graciously and gives such sweet refreshment that the warrior feels more calm and at peace in his daily strife than others in their hour of rest. The highway of holiness is the highway of communion. It is thus we shall hope to win the crown if we are enabled by divine grace faithfully to follow after Christ. The crown of glory will follow the cross of separation. A moment's shame will be well recompensated by eternal honor. A little while of witness bearing will seem nothing when we are forever with our Lord. May Christ be your treasure, church. May you seek him first in all that you do. May you repent when you do not. And may the love of May the love and grace of Christ continue to transform you into his image until the day that we see our master face to face. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for Christ. I thank you for his teachings. I thank you for how clear our calling is to him. And I ask, Lord, that you would give us all the strength. In ourselves, we are unable, Lord, but through Christ we are able to follow after him in the way that he has called us. If you are not the master of your children's heart, Father, may the conviction drive us, Lord, not to shame, not to run from you, but to confession, Father. For you have taken those sins, Father. You've taken those sins upon yourself. I pray for all my brothers and sisters here today that you would be their entire world, Father, that you would be their everything, that you would be their master, that you would be their treasure. Help us to know the idols of our own hearts, Father. Help us to confess those to you, that we we may run to you continually, Father, into your arms, into your loving grace. For you are a good master, Father. You are a good God. And you are a good Savior. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.